welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. Today we have two guests, Dr. Lisa Puglisi and Ms. Mania Saunders. Dr. Puglisi is a primary care provider and Ms. Saunders is a community health worker. They both work in New Haven, Connecticut with patients who have been incarcerated in the past. I'll let them tell us a little bit more about themselves. Hi, I'm Mania Saunders. I'm a community health worker in New Haven at Transitions Clinic. I'm also a facilitator for Worth Transitions. Gotcha. And you? Lisa Puglisi. I'm an internist, and I do addiction work, and I direct our Transitions Clinic, which is specifically a clinic that is focused on addressing the health needs of individuals when they're leaving uh, jail or prison back into the community. And we do that both through expedited access to primary care, but also through what we considered enhanced primary care, which is working with a community health worker who has themselves been incarcerated as a uh, point of real connection and engagement. And uh, Ms. Saunders, how long have you been working with the Transitions Clinic? Um, this coming May will be two years. I've been working with Transition Clinic as a community health worker. Okay. Uh, and how long has the, uh, the Transitions Clinic network been going on? So it started back in 2006 in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, my colleague Emily Wong, who you know, um, started it out there with a bunch of her colleagues, and it came to New Haven in 2010. Mm-hmm. We were initially at a different location, and since then, uh, for the, at least the last seven years, we've been at Yale. Fantastic. And, and the Cornell Scott Hill Health Center, sorry. Got it. Um, and Manya, as you're... As part of your role with the Transitions um, Clinic, can you tell me a little bit more about how, um, where you come into place in terms of these individuals getting care? Um, so I interact and assist men and women coming home from incarceration um, from jail or prison and assist them with um, getting medical treatment mm-hmm. along with mental health treatment and other areas that they may need for transition home from prison. Gotcha. Um, and you, Dr. Puglisi, how, you know, I gather that you're doing primary care in the setting. Um, how does that differ from the sort of typical primary care model? Great. So I think in probably two ways. So one is on a personal level, I'm practicing a type of primary care that I didn't anticipate when I was in training that I would have to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually an opportunity, so I don't see it as a negative, but it's a way of practicing that I hadn't fully conceived of when I was still at, at your level of training. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I mean by that is it's sort of primary care to the max mm-hmm. um, and kind of pushing myself to do things that I probably didn't know I would push myself to do. An Such example, as what? Yeah, an example is sort of um, coming into it. I had not been trained in doing addiction work in primary care, never even really thought about it that much during my residency for full disclosure. And then given what my, the population sort of really needed from me, it felt like I was always referring people out and then they wouldn't go places because that's just hard. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to make one doctor appointment a year. It's hard for other people to get referred around our city to specialty providers. And so because of that need that I saw, I developed skills in addiction work and became licensed to waiver to prescribe buprenorphine and sort of aligned myself with people who were already doing that at Yale to 
to get clinical expertise from them to the point where I felt really comfortable doing it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a hepatitis C treatment program in primary care. So I shadowed around with, you know, our hepatology experts here at Yale and learned how to treat hepatitis C that I was, there are many people with hepatitis C who have really pretty uncomplicated disease who could very easily be treated in primary care. But for instance, at my location, I'm the only person who does it. Mm -hmm. So because when I inventoried my patient, 30% had hepatitis C, I, you know, we, we trained up, I trained myself up, but we trained up our program really to be able to have our community health workers talk to people about hepatitis Mm -hmm. C, um, help them understand why they might want to be treated for an illness, which maybe they're not feeling the effects of right now. And then, you know, it's a treatment where adherence, medication adherence is really important, but it also, medication adherence is not a normal human trait. Right. (laughs) It's not easy for anyone. I, I find it really hard myself in my own life. And so, um, to help really engage people where they are around what does it mean to need to take a medication every single day or else it's not going to work and it's an expensive medication. So how do you help people see the value in that? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, Mania, you said you're a community health worker and you help sort of bridging that gap from the clinic perspective and also the patient's per- perspective. So you told me a little bit more about how that comes into play, you know, when someone was recently released, say, from prison or jail um, and needs to get services and then sort of longitudinally when maybe you're you're their person. How does that come together? Well, first and foremost, as a community health worker for a transition clinic, um, one of the criteria that you have to meet is one to be have had been incarcerated yourself. Mm-hmm. So me, myself, have been incarcerated some 10 or 12 years ago. You know, I've been incarcerated, so I know the feeling of being incarcerated. Um, I know the feeling of being, you know, released from jail or prison um, mm-hmm. and having poor treatment inside and coming home with basically no resources, nobody to help me navigate my care, nobody to help me, you know, fill out a job application, things of this nature. So it's, it's kind of an honor and a privilege to help someone um, with these, with their needs, mm-hmm. you know, transitioning home, whether it's with a bus pass or just to help them make a doctor's appointment. Um, Dr. Pugisi just mentioned the the aspect of, you know, the doctor's appointment, taking these medications um, just to, to, to assist the patients in the importance of taking your medications, mm-hmm. the regimen that you're on, and, you know, just, just things of those natures to call Bob and be like, Bob, you take that med today because, you know, you need that med so it, so it could be effective and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's, 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 it's a lot, and it, and it means a lot to that person mm-hmm. for somebody to care enough just to call and, and say, did you take that medication? Because, you know, just that phone call, it means a lot to that person because that means somebody really gives a damn, you know? Right. You know, a high blood pressure meds. Your, your, your blood pressure was high last week in clinic. Mike, are you taking your meds? You know, just, just the little, little things that mean much to our patients mm-hmm. because some of them don't have anyone that care, mm-hmm. you know? So it gives me great joy to call, just a simple phone call, mm-hmm. and, and to check on them because it means much to them. Right. And so I gather you kind of 
help with sort of care, care coordination matters, making sure that they're potentially adherent to their medication. Absolutely. Um, and as you mentioned, getting out of the, the prison or the jail system um, it means that kind of you kind of need to reestablish yourself in society. Um, so filling out job applications, mm-hmm. um, uh, potentially, I don't know, getting your rights to vote back, those types of things. So beyond taking medication, do you also help them with sort of social needs like the bus pass or? Um, so, so that's a very good question because we really, really don't have bus passes per se, but we have a lot of resource. Like as a community health worker, we have to know our community. We have mm-hmm. to know the resources in the community. We have to know what, what soup kitchens there are, what clothing, you know, where they're giving out clothes and everything in the community was involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we really don't see ourselves as sort of the bearer of all fruits. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's not a one-stop shop where you come and we'll make everything that you need happen. So we don't directly employ our patients. We Mm -hmm. don't point them. You know, but it's really sort of doing the the groundwork for them about where Mm -hmm. is a place you can get bus passes. Where is a place that's hiring that's not going to be so stigmatizing about your record? Yeah, Things of that nature, you know, yeah. uh, what are the new things going on in town around housing? Mm-hmm. You know, where is a, a place to live that might be safer for you, given mm-hmm. your own risk factors mm-hmm. for struggles you've had in the past? Right. We can guarantee you good medical health, though. That's um, one thing we can guarantee. Right. Good medical care. And then good the rest is kind of just helping navigating. Navigating. Um, cor- yep. Yeah. Exactly. Which. Which is, I, you know, I, even in medical school, we have, like, quote-unquote patient navigator programs, but mm-hmm. obviously a medical student is not nearly as equipped to be a patient navigator mm-hmm. as you might be as much as you know the community. Um, so and, and let's just highlight there the real divide between right. most medical students and the people who are coming to them from, for help. Mm-hmm. And in our opinion, that divide for some people is just still too too wide absolutely and so if you engage with a health worker who sounds like you went to high school or you went to high school maybe Mm -hmm. knows your aunt uh maybe you know goes to a church you used to go to uh ask you questions that just feel relevant to your life Mm -hmm. it's suddenly an intervention which feels attainable Mm -hmm. or reachable or a service Mm -hmm. that feels maybe meaningful or valuable to you as opposed to kind of same old same old like we see people who have been promised random stuff their whole life that just never happened Mm -hmm. you know yeah um and so a lot of the work that one way i i see our work that this was sort of uh, piggybacking off of the first question asked me is that we work at a, a system level much more than I ever anticipated myself working right. at a system level. So mm-hmm. we're sort of thinking, like, how do we recreate an experience for this person which builds trust in institutions? Because there's no reason they need to be trusting me. Mm-hmm. There's no reason they need to trust Yale, right? Because yeah. they've been at health services, and mm-hmm. they've been stigmatized, and they had a bad experience, almost universally have had a negative experience in the health system whether it was in an emergency department when they were withdrawing and got told, you know, we're going to, you don't need anything else or, you know, mm-hmm. go home and, and whatever, you know, uh, or just felt stigmatized there. Mm. Or whether it's an experience they had in medical services in the Department of Correction. You know, it's, 
universally there has been some really negative experience. So we have to work to break that down and then rebuild up a trustworthy relationship relationship or experience with an institution. And Mm -hmm. we do that in a couple ways. So community health workers who are from the, from capital C community health workers. Mm -hmm. um, Also, we work with a medical legal partnership here, which I see as critical to that because we're talking about people who have had really distorted relationships with law enforcement and the criminal justice and legal system. Mm -hmm. And they know that they've had distorted relationships, you know, and many have had sort of legal representation that they never trusted, that they Mm -hmm. never felt was working in their best interest. So what does that have to do with medicine? You might ask, uh, I'd say everything. You're asking all my questions. Keep going. <laughs> okay. So it has everything to do with it because it's just, it all looks the same. You know, some mm-hmm. random lawyer telling you some nonsense, some random doctor telling you some nonsense. I think it all looks the same. And that's what I hear from our patients is it does all look the same. And so how do you build a relationship where we say, actually, we care about your legal issues. And what we address is civil legal needs. Legal needs people never knew were legal needs. Mm -hmm. Like their right to, you know, certain types of employment. The fact that they can't be stigmatized in certain types of housing because of a criminal record. Um, Issues around having electricity for their health. Issues around um, expunging records, uh, child payment arrears, debts that they will never, never, never be able to pay. Mm -hmm. And how do you address those needs and say to that person, we value these needs. We know you're never going to care about your hep C if you have, you know, $50,000 in back payments you owe. And so let's try to address both of these at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? if you'd like to. Yeah, that sounds like a very sort of integrated way of caring um, individuals who are at a tremendous need. Um, So if I gathered this correctly, the clinic kind of has a it's like a three-legged stool i would i guess you have your community health worker Mm -hmm. their medical legal partnership and then the sort of primary care provider and you guys work in concert to Mm -hmm. meet the needs of um or at least attempt to meet the needs of these patients absolutely absolutely and so how do they come in contact with the clinic so say you use the word the name bob earlier say bob just got released yesterday um and Perhaps while he was in prison, he um, he was receiving, say, buprenorphine or methadone treatment. How would he then come into contact with the clinic in New Haven? Um, so there's a most most of them make a pit stop downtown New Haven called Fresh Start, mm-hmm. and um, there we work very closely to Fresh Start. We have our application transition applications inside of Fresh Start. They fill the application out. And we usually, you know, stop in at Fresh Start every so often, pick up the applications. We we contact the numbers listed on the applications, and we get them into clinic um, according to their needs. We also work with Cornell Scott, mm-hmm. uh, um, Columbia, um, Cornell Scott Hill Health Center mm-hmm. on Columbus Avenue, and primary care on Howard, 789 Howard Avenue. We call up the um, persons uh, um, when we receive the applications, and we get them in the clinic. Um, we try to get them in the clinic within a week or two um, after receiving the applications. Most of the time, they have a week at least two or three weeks worth of medications. So before they run out of those medications, we try to get them into clinic. 
um, the providers, Lisa Puglisi and Dr. Wong, is very um, good at refilling their meds before they run out of medications. Mm-hmm. And so, have you ever had struggles with, like, say, keeping someone with, you know, as part of the clinic sort of long-term? Like retaining. Yeah. Um, um, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Um, they'll come to clinic, and we kind of lose them. Either they'll change their number. Um, some of them even be um, reincarcerated, have been, have been reincarcerated. Or sometimes we just lose them. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for for some reason, not that, um, or we just can't find them. The numbers change, or, or we'll we'll go we'll we'll find them. Um, mm-hmm. to it, literally, hit the pavement to find them, and sometimes we just lose them, unfortunately. Gotcha. Um, but I think that's a unique aspect of it is mm-hmm. that it's literally hitting the pavement. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can do. think of you know more than a handful of patients where. It's been like, where did she go? I thought yeah. she was going to come. She seemed so into this. So then Mania what do you do? tries calling her. Well, um, then you text because maybe they don't have minutes, so they're not picking up. So exactly. you text. Yep. And then it's like, Mania, where did she say she hangs out? Oh, yeah. So she was at Columbus House, but she hangs out on this corner. Yep. And you know her, like, nickname that she told you. So mm-hmm. Manya literally will, you know, go drive to that corner and be mm-hmm. like, oh, have you seen, you know, so-and-so? Um so let me just go back for a minute. Mm-hmm. So when we first engage them and do their assessment, we try to get um, as many numbers as possible, nicknames, and kind of like where do you hang out at. That's what we've um, come to do and we learn to do. So at any point they lose their phone, um, don't have minutes, we'll go and definitely look for our people. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, that it sounds like it's pretty effective. Um, and then the aspect you brought up earlier about, say, you know, calling and checking on medication, making sure they're adherent. Um, what are some of the techniques that you've used, or, you know, aside from calling, like, to sort of convince them that, hey, this, like, hepatitis C medication is mm-hmm. something that you really need to take? Um, well, a lot of our, our um, patients, like, this receive text, and it's just not the hep C. It's um, just diabetes if their numbers are not mm-hmm. well. Um, their blood pressure is kind of elevated. We'll call and just check them. Just a reminder, um, did you take your meds today? Or we'll just ask them for the numbers for our diabetes patients. Um, that diabetic patient, we'll give them a chart and we'll just ask them to record their numbers, mm-hmm. bring it back, you know, to the clinic during next visit. Mm-hmm. And we'll just remind them, you know, how the numbers look in. And they usually respond. They usually do really, really well and respond because they like the fact that we're checking on them. Oh, right, so like checking the blood glucose. Yeah, they, they, they do their own finger sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, or even if they do have a nurse do their finger stick, they'll record mm-hmm. the numbers. But most of our patients are able to do their own glucose monitoring. Gotcha. And I think it's also like asking in a way that feels very relatable. So mm-hmm. it's not an interrogation. Right. You know, mm-hmm. how did you do this past week? <laughs> yeah. You know, well, yeah. there's only one right answer to that question, mm-hmm. clearly, right? Yeah. But it's not that. It's just like, how'd it go? You know, or mm-hmm. whatever the sort of a feeling that feels familiar mm-hmm. says to you, how are the numbers looking? Mm-hmm. I, I just see as an observer that that's so mm-hmm. much easier for people to engage with than you know, this sort of formal relationship that we often have. Um, And the community health workers can do that much better than I can. And another thing that they do um, is often, you know, for instance, uh, one of the other community health workers we work with who mostly focuses on the men 
he will go into a halfway house mm-hmm. <clears throat> for someone who just came home who's never had to manage their diabetes before because it was diagnosed inside and literally, you know, work with the ha- halfway house staff to help train them up to understand what the, this guy's challenges are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will, mm-hmm. he will um, have periodic meetings in the halfway house, so right where the person is, sort of what is the food in there? Mm-hmm. Uh what is the system for taking this insulin? Is it at a time of day that even makes sense? Mm-hmm. So a lot of sort of system work within even structures of housing and living that people are in when they come home, I think, is mm-hmm. another critical intersection point that people other than half uh, community health workers have a really hard time doing. Thank you for that. Um, and I have a question pretty specific to addiction because you mentioned you sort of had to get trained uh, on addiction um, medicine. So can you tell me what that transition looks like from an addiction perspective when an individual is released and is coming home? When someone comes home, it's a free-for-all. I mean, it's just, you know, from an addiction standpoint, it's the most vulnerable time. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, in, in studies done in other parts of the country, the risk of overdose post-release compared compared to matched peers is like 128 times higher. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look bad. at overdoses mm-hmm. in the state of Connecticut, about 50% have had recent criminal justice involvement. So clearly it is a very vulnerable time. And we don't have a unified sort of really systematic approach to that. We, we work to develop that. Um, that requires really flexible access, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried to get a new doctor appointment? You know, it's it's a the waiting list is often months. Mm-hmm. You know, you're waiting months to see a new physician. That's with private insurance. With Husky insurance, it can be six months, right? Well, that's just not going to work for someone right. who's coming home with mm-hmm. a, with medical problems. Period, and a substance use disorder. You know, taboo. So based on everything I just told you about their risk, they need to be seen immediately. So part of it is really flexible systems that recognize that unique risk. Mm -hmm. And we just say, oh my God, you heard this guy is using? Get him in tomorrow. I'll just come in and see him. Mm -hmm. Or get him in clinic on Friday. Why don't you go meet him in the community, make sure he has Narcan um, in the meantime. Educate him a bit. See what you think, how he's doing. Mm -hmm. If he's really not doing well at all, you don't think he's going to be good on Suboxone, Walk him over to APT. They have same-day access. Get him in line down at Long Wharf to get start methadone ASAP if he's interested. Mm-hmm. And if he wants to talk about it more, let's get him in this week. We'll just mm-hmm. make room, and we're going to talk about that, you know, number one. Maybe that's all you talk about on the first visit, right? right. You kind of have to prioritize. Um, but it takes systems that are much more flexible than ours are mm-hmm. in general, um, that are catered to the needs of the population mm-hmm. um, and that really start before the person's released. Um, right. You've almost, it, it's just too delayed to wait until they're mm-hmm. out often. But that being said, some people, if you're meeting people where they are, which is what we should be doing in all of the programs we develop, some people just aren't there before they're released. They're on a different mind. They're thinking about different priorities. And then once they're released and back in the community, their point of view may very well shift. And we have to be ready for that change, that shift in readiness. Thank you for that. Um, 
I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I, I definitely wanted to talk about addiction. So I think your answer was really comprehensive. Um, at Mania, you said you primarily work with women who have been incarcerated. Um, and so we know a lot of a lot of women who are incarcerated are mothers. And I'm wondering whether you've seen like, you know, sort of special um, issues that those formerly incarcerated women face once they get out of the system either related to the fact that they might be mothers uh, or just like women-specific issues? Well, I do work with women. Um, I'm currently working with a woman who just came home um, in May, mm -hmm. in June, and she's doing everything she can do to get her children back now. Um, she's just like two classes away. Um, we write letters for them, the women we work with for the courts, to the magistrates for um, DTF course or to the magistrate for a criminal course, whatever we could do, the women that are participating in our programs, um, whatever we can do to assist them, um, either for probation or for um, whatever they, they need us for, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. So I am working with the woman to get her child back. Um, just on the sideline, um, again, whatever I can do to help her, I see her on a weekly basis. I do run a, a group called WORF. It's called Women on the Road to Health. It's for women who's coming, who's had to come home from jail or prison six months or less. And just teaching them about um, ways to stay healthy, lowering their risk of HIV and Hep C and other STIs. Um, just teaching them tools how to cope and you know, just deal with life in itself, um, educating them on H HIV. I do an HIV and a hep C screening. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, kicking it, kick, just kicking it with the women, um, hearing what they have to say about certain issues, life issues, women issues, barriers, stigma, you know, being stigmatized, you know, being on probation, being in the system, and just, you know, just sitting back, kicking it with women, and hearing hearing their views and opinions, um, and and teaching them different ways and different techniques on how to deal with things, and you know, trying to prevent recidivism, um, keeping their women home, and keeping them with their families, educating them and their families and their communities on how to stay healthy. And Mania, you have a really unique perspective, I think, on sort of what that looks like emotionally for women. Because let's just say, like. There is nothing biologically or in the natural order of things that promotes women being away from their children. It's just not ever meant to have. I mean, the, I, I fully recognize there are unique circumstances in which a child is not healthy with its parent. Mm -hmm. I'm not naive. Right. That being said, the vast majority of the time, that's really not the case. And what have you witnessed about how it affects women emotionally? It's, it's, um, it's like words can't even describe how it is to be, you know, me as a woman who was away from, you know, my, 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 my children for 90 days. I mean, it may not seem long to, you know, mm -hmm. some of the other women or to anybody, but, you know, me, myself as a, a mom, a woman, a daughter um, who was away from her family for 90 days, you know, it's a long time, you know, and, then, and it's a part of you that's missing, um, and to be gone a, a length of time or 90 days or even longer is, is devastating. 
Um, and for these, for the women that I work with, um, you know, work with now, um, trying to get back with their children is um, hard work. And, and, and to see them working hard, it kind of put me back in, in, in a mind frame of, you know, things that I had to go through, you know. Mm-hmm. So it just make me more passionate for the woman. And, and if I could do it for them, you know, I probably would, but I can't. And all I could do is just teach them, you know, um, the way that I did it or give them the tools or just be there for them, you know, whatever they need. Sometimes it's just an ear to listen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think you, and, you uniquely kind of bear witness to all their efforts. Absolutely. Um, because I think in, in my observations of sort of watching you interact with women and, and taking care of women myself, um, you're, and this isn't unique to women, it's actually, it, we often don't prize people's assets. Mm-hmm and see them, people are complex. And just because someone has done something that's technically against the law does not, you know, a bad person make them, right? right. Sometimes and, laws are bad. But, <laughs> but you are then defined by being bad. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing that can feel worse to a woman than having been a, labeled a bad mom. Absolutely. And... To have someone bear witness to the fact that they cry, they care, they're mm-hmm. conflicted, they're heartbroken, mm-hmm. they're tired, lost, defeated, yet really want that baby back or that child back. You know, that's a really complex scenario, and it bears on their own health physically and mentally and I think that there's a value in having somebody else bear witness to those complex emotions that you have and mm-hmm. that that you're trying yeah well thank you for that um, answer um, I'm certain that the patients that you all see through the clinic really appreciate the you know the what seems to be monumental help that um, you guys are providing through both healthcare and sort of helping them um, getting back on their feet once they're when, once they come home. Um, so I really appreciate you all taking the time to talk to me and um, I look forward to sharing this with the rest of my community. So thank you so much and thank I you. look forward to continuing this conversation offline. Thank you. We look forward to it as well. Right, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.